Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Good morning, good afternoon, good whatever, wherever, whomever, animal, vegetable or mineral, whatever your preferred identification. This is Alan Averill and this is Agitators Anonymous. This may be episode 32, it may be episode 33, we aren't sure yet. We being me and my alter ego Victor have not decided which episode it may be. So, bear with me. This can be considered maybe part two of the podcast I entitled um, Freedom is Not the Default Setting of Society. Now, this podcast is going to be something that I've been thinking about for about 20 years. Um, I wrote a paper on it in 1995, I think. Um, I'm not sure whatever happened to that. No doubt, I cannot find it, I have not looked, but it's something I've been thinking about. And again, recently, in the last couple of weeks, last couple of months, well, let's just call it this shit show of a year. I've been thinking about it a lot. And what it is, what I'm going to do, is I'm going to take, let's say, I'm not going to say the year 1975, and that will become clear why. A, because it's my birthday, mm-hmm, but no. B, because a lot of things happened in 1975 that would make my proposed theory a little bit more complicated. So let's, I'm going to take the year 1974. Now, of course, it goes without saying, or maybe it does, that the Cold War was at its height at this moment. The mid-1970s is peak Cold War. So you have the Soviets on one side and their influence, their sphere of influence, and the United, have the United States on the other side with their sphere of influence. 
And as it will transpire, my opinion is that if you were a betting man in the early 70s, 74, you would have bet on the Russians and a very different world that would have been. But anyway, let's get on with it. And what we're going to do is we're going to examine where the world was in 1974. What was happening in the world? Um, I'm not going to go into everything, of course, but what I'm trying to portray to get across with this particular podcast is the very great feeling that I have now in society that people take freedom and liberty, freedom of speech, all of these things for granted. People think that somehow they've done a Francis Fukuyama on it, that history has ended. Very much hasn't. Sorry, FF, that weren't true, was it? Um, was his name Francis? Couldn't have been Francis. Anyway, whatever. Sorry, FF, but it's not true. History very much is alive and kicking and kicking me in the balls every single day right now at the moment. But the point is this, is that we have been living, let's say, from the fall of the Berlin Wall until now with a few balkanizations and a few slips and slides through the economy, through the crash of 2008. We have lived in almost like a shaft of light, essentially a moment in Western history where we have enjoyed um, perpetual growth, the birth of this post-Berlin Wall middle class all across Europe, the receding of the fear of the Cold War into the background of nuclear annihilation took a back seat, even though maybe people should have thought about it a bit more. We embraced a new form of, let's call it what it is, capitalist materialism. Let's, we embraced a new form of middle-class existence. And we've had about 30 years in the sun. We've had the further integration of the European Union fiscally. We have our open movement throughout the European Union. Well, we did. Um, and we have um, new member states. We have member states in application. Um, and the whole European integrative process has been moving at pace since we've had, well, it's been moving at pace since the 1970s, but it took on a little bit of a different complexion, I suppose, in the um, once we have fiscal financial union. 30 years sitting on the beach, getting fat, taking in too many cornettos every morning. The speedos are looking a little they're looking a little threadbare right now as they're hanging in the balance. What am I talking about? What I'm trying to say is that <clears throat> the default setting of society is not freedom. We've been almost lulled into a false sense of security for the last while. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the year 1974 and we're going to look around the world and see where society was. Because if you were a betting man in 1974, was over what was going to win or was going to win out, A, you would have said communism and B, you would have said authoritarianism because that is where the majority of the surface of this globe somewhere most people were living under. And so when I see the creeping hand of authoritarianism 
in the actions of our state, not just in Ireland, but across the UK and in Western Europe and Northern Europe and Southern Europe and in many other places. And Eastern Europe. Didn't forget about you. Um, I could give examples. You know the examples. You're living through them. You're living in them. You're living in the form of open prison states. And I've been saying to people consistently for the last few weeks, if you can give me an example of when the citizens of a nation handed over so many freedoms to the state and to politicians and the institutions of the state and got them all back a year later or got them back in the same preserved in the same way as when they were handed over I'd like to know that example I'd like to know it send me a DM no there isn't one there isn't one that is not the nature of politics that is not the nature of power the creeping hand of authoritarianism moves in many ways of course a complete subversion of Western society, which seems to have happened in about nine months. What are we going to give birth to? I don't know. But surely the tentacles were in the orifices before this, the preparations. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at the world of 1974 and lots of the leaders, lots of the countries, countries you go on holiday to, countries you've sat on that beach, had your ice creams, had your fun, had your cocktails and whatever else. They didn't always know. They didn't always know the form of freedom that you take for granted right now. This is not a lecture. It's just more of a casual observance of the past, of history. Because history didn't stop. It didn't stop when you became comfortable. That's a rather a strange sentence. What I mean by that is that history always teaches us something. To deny that history is the lecturer, the tutor of the present and the, how shall we call it, the architect of the future. So what were the main events of 1974? Well, you have the 1973 oil crisis, which in 1974 resulted in the resignation of Richard Nixon, for example. That would be quite up there. Um, you have the 1973 Yom Kippur War in Israel. You have the first screening of Happy Days. Yep, that too. The Carnation Revolution in Portugal. In the United Kingdom, Edward Heath, not a very nice man, resigns as leader of the country to be replaced by Labour's Harold Wilson. Queen released the single The Seven Seas of Rye. The end of the oil embargo by OPEC nations against the United States. That's pretty interesting if you want to go and watch some of the YouTube footage of members of, I think, of the Saudi diplomacy diplomats lecturing the USA about oil. Very interesting. The world's population reaches four billion. Four billion. In Ireland, we have the Dublin and Monaghan bombings. The Ulster Volunteer Force explode four car bombs in Dublin and Monaghan in the Republic. This attack kills 33 civilians and wounds 300. 
highest number of casualties during the Troubles. West Germany beats the Netherlands 2-1 to win the 1974 World Cup. Sorry, Mr. Cruyff. The Turkish invasion of Cyprus occurs. Gerald Ford becomes the new president of the United States. The IRA kill roughly 21 people in the Birmingham bombings. The United Nations General Assembly grants the Palestine Liberation Organization observer status. Pepsi-Cola becomes the first company allowed to sell their products in Russia. Dungeons and Dragons first appears. In Paris, the EC Committees of State and Governance commences and the first Rubik's Cube is invented. So let's get to it. Let's dig down into the rest of it. History can teach us everything because human nature, fundamentally, hasn't changed that much. Let's get into it. But first, I've got to point you to follow me on the gram at nemthianga underscore primordial. Um, I need my robot army to have my back. So please follow me there where you can find my uptight, cranky shenanigans. You can go to patreon.com slash Alan Averill with two capital A's. If you want to get some stuff for free and have two things that you're going to have to pay for every month, but you might not. I post demos of songs. I post all sorts of crazy stuff there. Crazy. Alan, you're crazy, crazy man. Um, Etc. The show is sponsored by Hate Couture, hateful yet tasteful apparel www.hate as in I hate you couture c-o-u-t-u-r-e 616.com put in the promo code Alan and you will get free shipping who doesn't want an inverted cross bottle opener who who among you exactly so let's take a look at the world in 1974 and let's first take three countries you may be very surprised about Three holiday destinations that you did not know had crypto-fascist dictatorships. The first of which is Greece. I'm looking at you, Greece. So, in 1974, Greece was ruled by, well, it started in 1967, but Greece was ruled by a junta, a military junta. They called it the Regime of the Colonels. And it was a, a series of far-right military juntas that ruled Greece for seven years. You want to know why the Antifa is strong in Greece? This is the reason why, hey? And listen, here's the story. You're going to listen to this podcast. Don't take it too fucking personally. I'm going back through time, through different countries. I didn't grow up there. These are just observations. But little did you know that... Well, maybe you did know. Of course you knew if you're living in Greece. But the the... Let's call it the chaos after the Second World War. You have Stalin basically did a number at the Yalta conference. He did a, he did a number over Churchill. He did a number over FDR. And they kind of thought they had him. They thought they had him in place. But you know what? Old Joe came out with the upper hand. He came out with massive territorial gains all across Europe. And the reality is that if the Marshall Plan hadn't been... Um, instigated in Western Europe there was a great fear that why did the Russians need to stop at Berlin they didn't really they didn't really they massively outnumbered 
um, American troops, for example, on the other side, um, even though they were on the same side, but you understand what I mean, they could have pushed on, or at least they could have stalled the ball. They could have stalled it for a while. There was no reason. And the Marshall Plan, <clears throat> the Americans knew that um, a, shall we call it, dismembered Europe, a ruined Europe, a Europe struggling on its knees economically, financially, that was trying to repair itself after the Second World War, they knew that that would be rife, rife for the kind of um, far left or right politics, but specifically communism. They knew that it was weak. As you can imagine, after the Second World War, you've got bombed out cities that need repairing. You've got um, however tens of millions of young men have given their lives all across the continent. The idea of a communist insurrection across the whole of Europe was very was a very great and real threat. So the Marshall Plan kind of insulated or at least propped up some democratic ideals in Western Europe. But if you look at what happened, most of Eastern Europe belongs to Stalin. It belongs to the Communist Party. Bulgaria, Hungary, Romania, Estonia, St Churchill just hands over Estonia, Lithuania, Latvia, and they didn't get their freedom from the Second World War until the 90s. Um, again, a country like Ireland, which has one of the oldest living democracies in Europe, uh, doesn't really, I think we don't really understand that a country like Estonia went from one side to the other and then had to live under communist um, oppression for the next 40 years, as did every other country under the Iron Curtain. So if you're some Cascadian black metal Marxist, maybe you need to get someone on the phone who lived through Ceausescu's Romania and ask them, hey, what was it like? What was it like? What was it like? Pretty fucking grim is the answer. Or anywhere behind the Iron Curtain. So you have this power play, this post-Second World War power play, as the, how we say, the cards fall. And there is a really great fear in Greece that the Communist Party is going to take control over Greece. There's American influence post-Second World War. Don't forget there was an awful lot of operations, the English uh, in, the, in, in Greece in the Second World War. So you have this military junta, the general's coup, uh, Papadopoulos, um, who they're afraid of um, the left-wing centrists, including Andreas Papandreou, the son of Georgios Papandreou. You probably know that name, I imagine. Well, no, you may not. Um, so these are more like, I suppose, right-wing monarchists. And you'll see this increasingly across the three countries that I'm first going to talk to. So they had a coup d'etat in 1967. So little did you know that um, for eight years, um, there was a crypto-fascist dictatorship in Greece. I'm not going to go completely over the top. Um, are completely into the history of that, or that would take up its own podcast. But the three off the top that I picked are just examples because they're now holiday destinations for people in the West. But in 1972, they were not free places. 
essentially. Just as an example. So, the Greek military junta in 1974 was in charge. And so, where are we going to go for our second little honeymoon in Europe? And that is to Portugal. And that is the rule of Antonio de Oliveira, Oliveira Salazar. Most people don't know about this at all. But um, a form of nationalist, I'm not going to use the word crypto fascist, but something like this. He was definitely opposed to democracy, communism, socialism, anarchism, liberalism. Um, he propped up Franco's rule in Spain. Oh, I've given away where number three is. Um, but he ruled Portugal from 1932. Well, he was prime minister till 1968, but he established the Estado Novo, which is like the new state which is a sort of corporatist authoritarianism that ruled Portugal until 1974. Yeah, I know. Who knew? Now, I knew about this since about... The first place that Primordial played... Um, well, one of the first places we went on tour was for a little tour in 1998 for the album Journey's End in Portugal. We went for like eight or nine days there to play. And we played in uh, Beja in the south. Um, and... We found it very strange that the local council, I suppose, was Marxist. And I got the history back then from the local people. And again, about three years ago, Dread Sovereign played a festival in a, low, in a sleepy town, the same. Um, Marxist, I suppose. Local council was quietly communist, I suppose. And what happened was that the revolution in 1974, called the Carnation Revolution, the leaders um, of that revolution, as I understand, don't be shouting at me, doing my best, came from that area. Then they were sent to a prison island off the coast of Portugal. And so Salazar's Estado Novo uh, used censorship and the secret police to quell opposition. Maybe not quite as bloody as their neighbours, who are I'm travelling next to, but um, they did their best to try and quell communism and he supported, as I said, Franco in the Second World War or in the French, the Spanish, oh, come on brain, the Spanish Civil War. Um, but yet he played a part in managing to keep Portugal um, neutral in the Second World War, but yet provided aid and assistance to the Allies. So it's not, it wasn't really um, the most bloody or brutal of democracies. Yes, there definitely was some rather brutal things and restrictions of the country you know at one stage in the early to mid 70s maybe let's say the mid to late 70s um the pigs were portugal portugal ireland greece and spain they were considered the four financial economic underlings of the european union the let's call them what they really were second world countries um the sort of scum on the shoe of northern europe who had no economic um, way of competing with the Brussels bureaucratic regime. I suppose it wasn't really Brussels yet. However, the Estado Novo collapsed during the Carnation Revolution of 1974, four years after Salazar's death. So, yeah, I'm not going to go into that. As I said, this is not what this podcast is about. This podcast is near, merely a look back at history and the fact that your freedoms or freedoms are a delicate thing.
and that most of us, at least as I understand, don't necessarily know how much of a how much of a how shall we say the thin curtain, the thin veneer that there is between freedom and dictatorship and how they can one can lay one can easily fall into the other. So Portugal, Portugal, a Salazar. So number three on your holiday destination list is Spain. And that's Franco, General Franco. Now, I've got to tread carefully here because Irish people are very closely linked to some of the struggles here. And I think once you cross the border from Portugal into Spain, things get a little bit more brutal. And Spanish history is fucking complicated. I tried many times to understand all of the factions in the Spanish Civil War. Irish people even went to fight in the Spanish Civil War. I'm making a, po I'm making a podcast about George Orwell. He went there too. The El Quinto Brigado, the 5th Brigade, uh, were Irish volunteers who went to fight the fascists in Spain. It's dark and it's bloody. And you should know about it. You should know about it. Um, he emerged as a dominant rebel military leader in the 30s and uh, was proclaimed head of state on uh, in uh, late 1936 and um, he didn't how can we say the Spain, Spanish, Spain never joined the Axis powers in the Second World War but they tacitly supported them and their republican institutions of the time it's of course curious that this is where the Spanish flu got its name from, from Spain, obviously. And this is where after the First World War, I suppose, the first tests that were done among the public returning or among young men returning from the First World War, they found this deadly influenza. Hence where I think the name Spanish flu comes from, because that's where the first tests were recognized. We do have to say that in the 1950s, Spain abandoned I suppose, a form of isolationism, a very similar isolationism to one that Ireland tried to do um, under de Valera. We tried to implement all of these board nomona, um, on board planola, on board blah, blah, blah. It means the board of. I suppose they're outdated, they were outdated sort of communist style institutions that were based on an inward looking or an internalized economy. But Spain sort of opened that out in the 50s and threw away its isolationism. Um, and I suppose the economy grew in the 1950s. Anyway, the point being, look, I'm not going to get too deep into Spanish history. Um, it was bloody. There has been many recriminations. Tens of thousands of people died. Um, and of course, two or three years ago, we saw Basque or Catalonian separatists in Barcelona fighting with the authorities. Spanish history is really complicated and I tread carefully around it and respectfully. All of these things that I'm mentioning, even though I'm pulling the odd silly voice and whatever, it's not my intention. My intention is to merely draw your attention to the fact that history can teach us very great and very dark lessons. And so there, out of the, the top of the podcast, we have Greece... Portugal and Spain, three of your favourite holiday destinations that maybe you did not realise in 1974 were all ruled by crypto-fascist military-style dictatorships. Did you know that?
well, you do now. Um, and if you've been offended by any comment there, please realize I'm just the singer in a heavy metal band trying to do my best in th throwing a few history nuggets out there. But I feel that you're not really getting the overall picture here. So let's take a look around the world. Who is free in 1974? Well, you know, Canada, America, New Zealand, Australia, Ireland, England, some of Western and Northern Europe. But let's consider this, that the whole of the, the whole of Eastern Europe is behind the Iron Curtain. And this means Ceausescu, Ceausescu in Romania, Tito in Yugoslavia, um, Todor Zichov in Bulgaria, um, Girech in Poland, Husech in Czech Republic, Janos Kadar in Hungary, Enver Honecker in Albania. And that's just off the top of my grey matter. All of those countries are living behind the Iron Curtain, living under a form of satellite communist dictatorship, which is brutal and repressive. Um, and of course, the DDR, you've got um, you've got Hanukkah ruling over the DDR. Uh, anecdotally, what did they say? One in five people was in was connected to the Stasi or the secret military police. Um, I know people, uh, heavy metal people, heavy metal people, um, musicians who tried to live uh, under those regimes where they had to make their own uh, guitars, their own instruments, their own amps, risked beatings by the secret police, would spend two or three days in isolation from merely being caught rehearsing with a group of other people. Everybody was informing on everybody else. You may have noticed in my 12 rules for life in Dublinistan, Dublinograd, I discuss the fact that the public now here are encouraged to inform on people. Listen, it's the creeping, slow hand of authoritarianism. And I'm not even finished with the rest of the world. We can go on. We've got Brezhnev in the USSR in the early 1970s. Letter to Brezhnev, you probably know. Maybe you should read or watch. Almost all of the Eastern Bloc is living under these, let's call them this, Stalinist um, repressive regimes. Well, not obviously Stalin is dead, but what I mean by that is this, the shadow of the fear that he established is living and breathing through all of these states and the people within them are not free. Well, of course they're not free. <laughs> and that was not meant in a as a disrespectful little laugh. It was just meant as a, this is a very dark lesson from history. And of course, you know, you have, um, let's say the Czech Republic and um, Vaclav Havel and the um, Velvet Revolution, I guess is 1990. You know, he was a poet before that and was declared leader of the newly freed Czech Republic. So from many countries, like in a country like Ireland where we don't really understand because the Second World War was not fought on our soil, what we don't understand is that for many countries, the Second World War just didn't end in 1945. It continued. The oppression may have changed its flag, but it continued. And in many cases, the secret police or the military police continued their bloody handwork. People just stepped to sideways from one uniform to another and performed different tasks. And we have this very great 
um, na naive belief that, well, this could never happen here. This could never happen here, Alan. What are you talking about? And this is this sort of I'm all right Jackism. This sort of, I'm not saying, of course, that Ireland could turn into a military junta. That's not my point. That's not the point of this podcast. But what I'm trying to point out is where the world was in living memory. And I'm not even finished with the names of horror, the horror that is yet to come. I mean, do we even start in South America? Does anybody want to go there? Does anybody want to talk about Pinochet? So, okay, let's roll across to South America. Let's roll across to South America. Again, a country I only managed to get to visit last year for the first time. It's fascinated me for years, years and years. I've been completely obsessed with its or incredibly fascinated with its history. But it became a sort of battlefield of the Cold War. Um, many proxy Cold Wars were fought across South America. What you have to understand is, well, you don't have to understand, but is that Russia and the United States never really fought directly and they never fought through powers that had nuclear capability. That was not the premise of the Cold War. It was to fight proxy wars against each other. And South America was riven completely destroyed by this in the 1970s. Democratically elected governments in Argentina, Brazil, Chile, Uruguay and Paraguay, Paraguay were overthrown and displaced by military dictatorships in the 1960s and 70s. Um, and their governments detained tens of thousands. They killed hundreds of thousands of people. Torture was just open. Torture was completely open. Life in Pinochet's Chile in the 1970s for dissidents. Um, again, I mean, even if we take Colombia, Colombia has had a an ongoing internal conflict um, which started in 1964 uh, with the FARC, the Marxist guerrillas. Um, 1964. So all of these revolutionary movements, movements and right-wing military dictatorships clashed all across South America in um, uh, the 1960s and 1970s. And and who are all these people? Well, I've, as I said, you've got Pinochet in Chile. You've got Medici is the president of Brazil at this time. Um, Hugo Banzer is the president of Bolivia. Peron in Argentina. You have Alfredo Stroessner is the president of Paraguay. In Peru, Juan Velasco Alval Alvarado. He's the president of the revolutionary government of the armed forces of Peru. And we go on and on. Um, and so the whole country is completely torn by these proxy wars and insurrections between the either side of the Cold War powers. What's going on in Africa? I hear you ask. What is going on in Africa? Well, does the name Idi Amin in Uganda mean much to you? Probably not. You've probably forgotten his name. Maybe you should have a look. An absolute butcher of a ruler. Mugabe, who you, of course, probably know still. Ruler way, way, way past the 1970s. He was the ruler of Zimbabwe. Um, I didn't mention Castro in Cuba. Enquem, Quem? Yeah, I didn't know either. Leader of Equatorial Guinea in the 1970s killed one third of the population. Zike in Congo, Haile Selassie, 
Emperor Haile Selassie of Ethiopia, Gaddafi, yeah, you know who he is. He was the leader of Libya. Nasser in Egypt, um, who was an incredibly important figure, as it turned out, connected to European history. Sadat in Egypt, Gowon in Nigeria, William Tolbert Jr. in Liberia, and in a couple of years, a very young man called Saddam Hussein in Iraq. Are you getting the picture yet? And I haven't even started on Central America. I haven't even started on Asia. Because in 1974, you've got 75, you've got the end of the Vietnam War and you've got essentially um, Marxist military uh, juntas taking over most of Southeast Asia um, and, you know, and other monarchical countries as well. So my point is that if you were to take a globe, now that's a very, I've skipped over so many incredibly interesting things. I mean, we could do a whole, I could do a whole podcast on the Suez Canal crisis, for example. That would be, well, fascinating to me, but it would be fascinating. It, history is so complicated. Um, and even just trying to research this a little bit broke my brain, but that wasn't my intention. My intention was, Right now, I have the feeling that we are living through a pivotal moment in human history. I might be wrong and in nine months, as I've said before in the podcast, that you can come and poke fun at me and go, oh, you see, it's all back to normal, etc., etc. But the idea that history doesn't teach us anything is so incredibly dangerous and naive. I don't even know where to start on that kind of intellectual cowardice and incompetence because it does. It teaches us everything. And the fact is that in the year 1974, most of the globe was not free. OK, the landmass of Canada and America. Well, of course, if you're going to place Ecuador and Equatorial Guinea and etc. up against it. Mm hmm. Hello, China. Did I not mention you? Mao Zedong. Mao Zedong. Um, no, I didn't somehow mention China, of course. Massive population then, same massive population now. What can we say? Yeah. China was, of course, ruled by the Chinese Communist Party, the same people who rule it today. So, but if we take most of the population of the world, um, and I haven't even gone to India, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, Pakistan, and, just, and looked into their politics yet. It's next. It's next. This is what's been corrupting my grey matter for the last while. But the point is, is that if this is the second part of the podcast I did the other day, where, as I said, freedom is not the default setting of society, then we are, we can go back in living memory and discuss that very fact with people who are who were alive then, people who lived under. And I know these people, and I've been to these countries. If you've never left um, the Pacific Northwest and think that you know marching under a hammer, hammer and sickle is a good idea. I, I like I said, I suggest maybe when well, I'm not sure you can do it now. I don't know. Maybe reaching out to somebody who lived under communist rule and behind the Iron Curtain and ask them how it really was. No, that wasn't real communism. Listen, well, then nothing is a real anything because it's human nature to um, manipulate and adapt these scenarios for themselves. But the very nature of power and politics alters alters it changes the landscape and so the world in the year 1974 
if you were a betting man, you would have said, well, I'm going to bet on communism. I'm going to go, I'm going to bet on authoritarianism. And you know what happened? Now, you can tear strips off this idea, or you may not, but a couple of things brought down that form of authoritarianism. And you all, or certain people, celebrated when she died, but, you know, and I'm sure if you lived and were, grew up in a colliery in the north of England um, when the pits were closed, you would have just reason to. But there's no denying that the um, political work of Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan um, in conjunction with Gorbachev helped bring down the end of the um, Berlin Wall, helped bring down that wall. Now, how many people behind the Iron Curtain maybe have some form of freedom that they can attribute to the political machinations of a Margaret Thatcher is up for debate. But I would hazard a guess that it's more than you can imagine. That and, of course, you have the urging of the Vatican, which had traditional anti-communist leanings. But you can surely say that Lech Walesa and the Solidarność movement were propped up by, um, at the time, of course, Pope John Paul was Polish. And most definitely there was support for the Solidarność movement, at least that I can see from the Vatican, from Catholicism. Because, of course, there ain't no God in a godless state, is there? So what am I talking about? What's my point? My point throughout all of this, and it's going to be another, I guess, sort of part to this, was to take a vague, well, not a vague, but to skim across history like a stone across a pond and just land in a couple of places and just make the case, as I said, that freedom is not the default setting of society and that right now, eight, nine months into this situation, this emergency, People need to realize what they've handed over to the authorities. And like I said, if you can point out to me any time in history where those freedoms, liberties were handed back to the people, I'd like to know it. Um, and I would also implore people on the new left. I say this often because the old left I understood, whether it was healthcare, housing, um, rent equality, that kind of stuff, or um, traditional left-wing causes, I understood. The new left, the identitarian politics and all that kind of stuff, um, look, I don't get it. Um, I don't have much time for it. But somehow the new left came down on the side of perennial lockdown. I don't know how that happened. I think it's because um, tech people are more middle class maybe or new emergent middle class and can therefore work from home and working class people of course can't it's an old and new legacy system you're going to i think you're going to hear that word those two words legacy systems in the next year as the states of western europe try and dismantle legacy systems such as the office where you work i'll get into that on another podcast but my point is that somehow it's been left to the new, I'm not even calling, going to call them the new right. I don't even know what it is to try and defend freedom and liberty. And to me, it's been perfectly set up by the people, the states and the institutions of power above, sort of above this conflict so both sides can face off against each other. But in actuality, they are fundamentally the same 
they may have the same view if they could both just stand a little tiny bit to either side. A little tiny bit. Just move a tiny bit to see where we are from a slightly different angle. Because questions of liberty and freedom are more important, in my opinion, than nearly everything. Because if this situation is going to usher in, how can we say, a micromanaged world of digital authoritarianism where your every move is tracked. You can call me paranoid. You can call me um, whatever you want. That's okay. And like I said, in nine months' time, you can hopefully poke me in the ribs at a festival and go, ha ha, I see you were wrong about all that stuff. Listen, I hope so. But the track record of humanity doesn't look great. It doesn't look great if you're a student of history. And that's what I'm trying to get across, as I said, is that freedom is not the default setting of society. And it's naive to think that it is. I'm quite surprised at how many people have tacitly and rather quietly accepted um, terms of this, terms of lockdown, and probably will again in January. I have the feeling they're the kind of people who would have quite liked to live in one of these authoritarian states that I mentioned or would perhaps like to live in a Sharia law state or a state where all of their actions and um, were managed by the state, the institutions of the state. Um, if you are one of those and you don't really know it, I would ask you to consider what the terms liberty and freedom mean and to consider how has it come to pass that things have turned out that way. Now, I have various different opinions on why. I think, for example, the 1960s countercultural left-wing movement wanted emancipation from the institutions of the state. Um, whereas now, I think the very same people on the new left are demanding justice to be delivered by those very same institutions of the state. They're, implore, they're imploring the institutions of the state to have more um, more power in their lives and that's incredibly dangerous to me they're, they're asking for the institutions of the state to come in and regulate and to deal out justice and so on those terms all of these companies these Chase Manhattans these huge corporations are more than happy to pay lip service to this ideal because it means they're not going to be held to account for what they're doing financially behind the scenes anyway Oh, my friends, you were here for some heavy metal stories and for some easygoing chit-chat. And here I am talking about Franco and Salazar and Idi Amin and Mugabe and etc. I'm sorry, but this is where my brain is at right now when it comes to these things. And so if I can be, how can I say? To me, it feels like this at the moment. It feels like there's a bank heist going on and it's going on in broad daylight and people are just carrying out money from the vault through the door. Security are just standing there looking at the bank robbers and the public, some of the public, are pointing it out. Hey, they're robbing our bank. Some of the rest of the public are going, ah, will you stop? Quiet. Ah, come on. Look, I'm just trying to do my shopping. And some of us are going, yeah, but they're robbing your bank. 
the security are kind of meh well look tis what it is I don't know that's how it feels to me that in nine months and only nine months the civilization that we live in has been turned on its head and a great percentage of the public don't really seem to have noticed or at least I haven't noticed that they've noticed this was episode 30 blah, 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 blah. who knows when I'll throw this out there and like I said if I've skipped across your country's dictator and you were a particular fan of that guy and it tends to all be guys um, sorry about that I can't wear a different hat 40 times in the one podcast or if you were particular if you like the reds but don't like the blues and I only mentioned the blues again sorry about that I can't squeeze all of the military juntas into one podcast can't squeeze all of the disappeared and the secret police deaths all into one podcast but listen I tried to do something so episode 32 this is the second part of freedom is not the default setting of society um, and I'm Alan Averill and I am quietly going mad so please send help Agitators Anonymous metal never bends I will be returning with some dumb stories of tour escapades um, who knows Maybe some kissing and telling in the future. But for now, I'm on I'm on the freedom train. And that was episode 30. Blah, blah, blah. Metal never bends, my friends. <laughs>